This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. For details, visit the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from The David Pakman Show, The Young Turks, Real Time with Bill Maher, Jim Hightower, The Tom Hartman Program, Grit TV with Laura Flanders, Activism from the Unfuck It Up Project, and The Majority Report. Now, enjoy the show, everyone, and don't forget to tip your servers. I want to talk briefly about the American dream. I saw the documentary Park Avenue the other day. If you have Netflix, it's on Netflix. You can find it, hopefully, some other places as well. And the documentary looks at Park Avenue in Manhattan. And then at Park Avenue, if as you go north in Manhattan, over the water in the Bronx, Park Avenue in the Bronx. And just the drastic difference between the Manhattan Park Avenue, where some of the, the richest hedge fund guys and Koch brothers and others have apartments, and Park Avenue in the Bronx in an area where there is overwhelming poverty, overwhelming unemployment, 40 and 20 percent respectively at certain periods in the last few years. And I really started thinking about whether the American dream is even a reasonable thing to be teaching children as they grow up to believe in. And what I mean by that is, I don't mean teaching children that they should try to be whatever they want to be when they grow up that there are opportunities for them to learn, to travel, to work, to explore, and to become kind of self-realized, well-rounded human beings, that is a good thing to teach children. But what I'm talking about is the idea that, truly speaking, everybody has an equal shot at being successful, whatever success means to that particular person. Because, factually speaking, upward mobility is very, very low in this country, particularly compared to other countries at the same level of development where the U.S. is. People who are born into significant poverty rarely get out of it. Now, this is the point where a lot of people will be watching this and they'll say, hold on a second, all these actors, all these rappers, all these athletes, think about all of these people who started poor and they are now doing very well for themselves. We need to think about large numbers. The fact that you can come up with several hundred or even several thousand individuals who have inspirational stories about lifting themselves out of poverty to incredible riches does not change the fact that when you look at the numbers, very, very few people who are born extremely poor are ever anything other than maybe slightly less poor. That's just the reality, Lewis. Yeah, the numbers speak for themselves. What's a few thousand compared to uh, 300 plus million? Uh, it's the numbers. Uh, that's where the facts are. The best example I've always had, because people, I, I can see the YouTube comments and people will say, David, we don't have racism in this country anymore. President Obama is the president and we have affirmative action and everybody has the same shot and discrimination's not legal we have we have a fair society everyone plays by the same rules and an example i've been using for years and i encourage you to use it when you talk to people about these issues is actually used in the documentary park avenue which is think about the game monopoly everyone starts with the same amount of money everyone starts with presumably the same mobility in terms of your rolling two dice However, think about what would happen if you join the game after your four friends have been playing for an hour. You get the same amount of money they got at the beginning, you roll the dice, but the property's been bought up, there's a system where rents have been driven up because the number of houses and hotels that friends have on their properties. Just because now the rules 
have been have been equalized, where you were first not allowed to play and now you are, it's too late in the game. And the idea that because now on paper the rules are the, the same, it doesn't mean we don't have significant structural issues that prevent upward mobility and essentially make the American dream truly a very distant dream for, for most people born into poverty. by the name of Nancy Salgado uh, went to a press conference where the U USA president of McDonald's, Jeff Stratton, was speaking, and here's what happened. Woman and a single mother of two. It's really hard for me to feed my two kids and struggle day to day. Do you think this is fair that I have to be making $8.25 when I've worked for McDonald's for 10 years? The thing is that I need a raise, but you're not helping your employees. How is this possible? You are doing, you're asking and you're out here putting your face and said, I've done all this, but to your employees, you haven't done anything. All right, and visit therealnews.com for more uh, video of that uh, situation. They did a good job covering that. Um, but I, I love the fact that she literally spoke truth to power there mm -hmm. because he didn't expect that. He didn't see it coming. And I love how the security guard says, you're going to get arrested. For what? For speaking the truth? For talking about how he, she can't feed her own family? And, you, and as you guys know, fast food workers have been protesting. They've been striking because they want to get fi paid $15 an hour. They want to have the right to form unions. Um, and it seems like these businesses are refusing to allow them to do that. And when else would she have access to the McDonald's USA president? So it's not like, hey, you did it in the wrong way. Normally, he's meeting with your employees all the time, mm -hmm. you know. Uh, but so why did you have to cause a ruckus? No, and she didn't cause a ruckus. She simply stated what her issue was. Now, look, if there was a continuing disturbance, yada yada, I understand. But it certainly didn't seem to rise to that level where they threatened their arrest at that point. And by the way, more importantly. The CEO could have answered the question, right? Yeah, I've been here for 40 years. And? That doesn't answer anything. And by the way, did you start at, you know, when you were 10 years in, were you making $8.25? Mm, I would be surprised if you, you could have said that, if that was the case. Because we did the story where the managers come from the uh, employee ranks only like 3% of the time in fast food, right. uh, you know, joints like this. And so, very unlikely that the CEO used to actually, you know, make burgers back in the day. So that's not something that happens often. But if it was, you can tell us your story. Or if you're the CEO, and look, the, somebody asked me about their salary, you answer it. And you say, hey, listen, here's why we pay what we pay. I understand your situation, and I think it's really tough. And, and I love you for working at McDonald's. You know, under those tough circumstances, I know. And you've been with us for 10 years, and I appreciate your loyalty. You know, we try to do the best we can, but here's our cost structure, etc. But he apparently doesn't have that answer, so he goes, with, "Oh yeah, I've been here 40 years." 
somebody arrest her. Get her out of here. Yeah, and he doesn't he doesn't have that answer because there's absolutely no reason why these, you know, low-level employees shouldn't get paid more money. Okay, they get paid minimum wage. That that's just how it goes. And she's been with the company for years. It's not like she's been there for like a few months and she's asking for $15 an hour. Um just to let you guys know exactly how much they make in profits, last year alone McDonald's made 5.5 billion dollars in profits. See, that's why the answer is impossible for him. Yeah. Cuz he can in good conscience say, "Well, I could pay you a living wage, but then we'd only make 4.5 billion dollars in profits." Right? And the reality is he could and they would make 4.5 and then he would get fired. Right? Yeah. Cuz they would say you could have made 5.5. So we will now have someone else run the robot that is this corporation that happens to be in this case McDonald's and we will squeeze every red cent out of our customers uh and mainly our employees to make sure we make the maximum amount of profit. Mhm. So look, corporations are built this way. You can't build a machine and then damn the machine, right? Understand how it works. If you want to fix it, then fix the code, right? Say, "Hey, you know what? Corporations will no longer work this way. They will work slightly different, right? We need a profit motive, but we could do it in a slightly different way. For example, in Germany, labor is half of the board. So then they actually care about their employees. It's not like Germany's doing poorly, second best economy in the world, right? So there's a different way to structure the machine so you get the result you want mm-hmm. instead of the result we've gotten where the majority of us get crushed and the guys at the very top of the machine get all the money. Until Ronald McDonald starts paying his employees a living wage, he has to wipe that fucking smile off his face. Yeah, there we go. I've won you back. Yeah. <laughs> I'm with you now. A new study says the median income for fast food jobs is $8.69 an hour, and let's face it, that is barely enough to gas up the car you're living in. Remember this subway sandwich maker who a couple of months ago tweeted a picture of himself wiping his dick on the bun? You can hate him, but you can't really blame him. <laughs> Now, when it comes to raising the minimum wage, conservatives always say it's a non-starter because it cuts into profits. Well, yeah, of course. <laughs> Paying workers is one of those unfortunate expenses of running a business. <laughs> you know, like taxes or making a product. If you want to get rich with a tax-free enterprise that sells nothing, start a church. <laughs> you might think that paying people enough to live is so self-evident that even crazy people could understand it, but you would be wrong. <laughs> Michelle Bachman is not only against raising the minimum wage, she's against having one at all. She once said if we took away the minimum wage we could virtually wipe out unemployment because we would be able to offer jobs at whatever level. <laughs> Put that in your brain and smoke it. <laughs> you could hire everyone if you didn't have to pay them. 
And naturally, Ted Cruz agrees. <laughs> Ted Cruz thinks it's a good thing that when his Cuban father came to America, he was paid 50 cents an hour to work as a dishwasher before becoming Charo. <laughs> when did the American dream become this pathway to indentured servitude? This economic death spiral where workers get paid next to nothing, so they can only afford to buy next to nothing, so businesses are forced to sell cheaper and cheaper shit. Walmart employees can only afford to shop at Walmart. McDonald's workers can only afford to eat at McDonald's. And Hooters waitresses have to wear shirts they grew out of years ago. <laughs> And, look, even if you're not moved by the don't-be-such-a-heartless-prick argument, consider the fact that most fast-food workers, whose average age, by the way, now is 29, I'm not talking about kids, are on some form of public assistance, which is not surprising. When even working people can't make enough to live, they take money from the government in the form of food stamps, school lunches, housing assistance, daycare. This is the welfare that conservatives hate. But they never stop to think, if we raise the minimum wage and forced McDonald's and Walmart to pay their employees enough to eat, we the taxpayers wouldn't have to pick up the slack. This This is the question the right has to answer. Do you want smaller government with less handouts, or do you want a low minimum wage? Because you cannot have both. If Colonel Sanders isn't going to pay the lady behind the counter enough to live on, then Uncle Sam has to. And I, for one, am getting a little tired of helping highly profitable companies pay their workers. Especially when... I don't even eat at KFC. Yeah. I mean, I get high, not that high. One question I get a lot from listeners has to do with how long it takes me to make an episode of Best of the Left. Well, between all the research, show prep, and actual editing, it comes out to around 20 hours of work for each one of the 10 episodes I make every month. Obviously, this is only possible because of the listeners who chip in a few bucks each month to make it happen. So if you appreciate this show and think it provides a valuable service, then please think about becoming a member at the $10 a month level. That's only a buck a show, after all. I've always believed in giving away the show for free so everyone can hear it without restrictions. So if you can afford 10 bucks a month, that covers yourself and several others who maybe can't afford to pay but who need to hear the show as much as anyone. As thanks, members also receive bonus content, including extra voicemails, behind-the-scenes stories and more of my personal musings thanks so much for your support let us all now bow before the god of free enterprise whose awesomeness was revealed in a recent news release announcing that the divine managers of fast food demigod mcdonald's achieved a profit of 1.5 billion dollars in just three months this summer Holy Big Mac! How did it do that? Peek behind the curtain and you'll see that McDonald's secret power is thee and me, America's taxpayers. The corporation rips off its huge workforce by paying poverty wages and no benefits, then directs the workers to the food stamp office and other government-funded safety net programs. Neat, huh? 
A major chunk of the chain's cost of doing business disappears from the corporate books, and Shazam reappears on the government's books. In fact, the National Employment Law Project reports that McDonald's phenomenal $1.5 billion profit is bloated by an estimated $1.2 billion that we taxpayers will shell out this year to support its predatory wage and benefit policy. Aren't you loving it, as the chain's ads say? But the Golden Arches are not alone in this fast food flimflam. The conglomerate owner of Kentucky Fried Chicken, Pizza Hut, and Taco Bell duns us for $648 million to underwrite its poverty pay. Subway burrows into us for $436 million. Burger King, a British outfit, taps us for $356 million. Little Sweet Wendy's grabs more than a quarter billion bucks from us, and Dunkin' Donuts dips into our pockets for $274 million. And look here, it's Domino's Pizza, whose extremist right-wing owner says he hates government spending, but he's picking the taxpayers' pockets to the tune of $126 million to subsidize his free enterprise. This is Jim Hightower saying the corporate powers preach about the magic of the marketplace, but magicians don't do magic; they perform illusions. There's this restaurant. There's actually a, a, a couple of them. This is happening. There we go. Jay Porter, the founder of Linkery, previously of San, Fran San Diego, currently uh, close to move to San Francisco, eliminated tipping in that restaurant's second year. Instead, he put an 18% surcharge and just, you know, everybody gets the tip. So that's one way to do it. Another is other restaurants are simply saying, you know, instead of paying our, our uh, wait staff three bucks an hour plus tips, we're going to pay them, you know, 15 bucks an hour plus benefits. Period. And just say no tipping. Another option, which I don't see anybody discussing in the United States, but it's kind of a middle ground, is to say, uh, you can tip, but you can't tip over 10%. So it's kind of the, the European model. In fact, Europeans are the bane of the existence. First time European tourists to the United States are the bane of the lives of, of people who work at restaurants on the East Coast. Well, all over the country, presumably, but I know in particular on the East Coast and on the West Coast where tourists just suddenly pop up from, from Germany or France and, and they tip 5% and think that they're really, really doing good, right? 10%? Wow! I mean, when, you, when you're in Europe, in many of these countries, in many of these places, you kind of basically tip with pocket change. Because the person is already making a decent wage. In fact, if you don't get really superlative service, don't tip at all. Nobody's offended. Well, maybe a little bit. But the point is that 
tipping is that for waitstaffs, this is kind of the last of the um, meritocracies in the United States. Or the last place, one of the, la one of the few places where consumers have a direct interface and are able to, uh, you know, with, with people who are providing services and are able to respond to that in a way that, that is calibrated to the, to the quality of service they got. Go to a McDonald's, you don't tip the, the, the person at McDonald's. If you go into uh, a department store or go into Walmart, buy something, somebody helps you out, you don't tip them. But taxis and and even that, I mean, you know, Uber now doesn't take tips. You can't you can't tip an Uber driver. Instead, what happens? Uber is the service that that uh, is giving the taxis a run for their money, big time here in Washington D.C., where limousine drivers in their spare time will pick you up. It's a whole computer, you know, runs on an iPhone kind of thing, and uh, it's all computerized. It's super efficient. And basically for the cost of a cab ride, a little bit more, now they've got UberX, which is actually the cost of a cab ride a little bit less. Again, no tips. They will take you anywhere you want to go. And they do it in nice, clean, brand new, fresh, freshly, you know, spiffy cars and nice drivers. And it's really pretty cool. But you still, it's still a meritocracy because when you get out, before you can order the next car on the app, you are required to rate that driver one to five stars. And if the drivers, if their number of stars starts dropping below a certain threshold, and I'm not sure what it is. I've heard that it's four and a half, but I, I, or four, I'm not really, I don't know. Nobody at Uber's ever explicitly told me. I've had drivers tell me, but, but if they fall below that number, they lose their job. They, they lose their gig with Uber. And on the other hand, when you get out of the car, they rate you. So, you know, if you show up at 2 o'clock in the morning drunk out of your mind and pee all over the back seat of their car, and that, by the way, this is the kind of stuff that happens relatively commonly in taxis. People throw up in them, you know, et cetera. They rate you one star, and you get rated badly a couple of times, and they just won't take your business anymore, the company. So there is something to be said for some sort of a meritocratic system in the service industry. But this whole let's pay restaurant workers lousy wages, you know, the, the minimum wage is suspended for restaurant workers in most places. Or at Portland, Portland, Oregon, where I used to live just recently, I mean, just in the last couple of years when I was living there, said, okay, we're going to do away with this. You have to pay restaurant workers minimum wage, which is $8 and something in, in Portland. And you can tip them. And all the restaurants were like, this is going to be the end of the world, but it wasn't. So this is not just, you know, kind of small talk stuff. This is this has to do with the one of the largest and one of the only growing industries in the United States. Are you your work? Come on, honestly. 
Most of us human beings define ourselves more by our human doings. It's a blurring brought to us courtesy of the American work ethic and one that, in addition to plain old need, drives Americans to work longer hours and longer years than any of our industrial world colleagues. While unemployment is high and productivity is through the roof, can we really raise no other demand for change than the one for ever more work? Oscar Wilde once said that a map of the world that does not include utopia is not worth even glancing at. So we've invited someone in to help us fill out that map. Kathy Weeks is an associate professor and director of graduate studies at Duke University and the author of the book, The Problem with Work, Feminism, Marxism, Anti-Work Politics, and Post-Work Imaginaries. Kathy, welcome to the program. Thanks. So first off on the data, how does the U.S. compare to the rest of the, what used to be called the developed world? I sometimes wonder if we are that developed after all. We work longer and harder than other countries. Um, and even, you know, I mean, our productivity, as you said, is through the roof, and that's true. But even, I think some of the recent measures is that we're not the most productive workers per hour. And some people even suggest it's because we work too much. And we become sort of less productive on an hourly basis because of this, you know, overwork. And vacation days? Oh, we're, we're, oh, we're so bad on vacation days. We're yeah. talking in the height of the summer in New York. Um, it's supposed to be vacation season. Uh, but most of us are working through. What's wrong with that? It says at least two things for me. I mean, uh, uh, one of them is that um, we are under the thumbs of our employers. I mean, if we don't have the power to even demand some basic vacation time or to take it if we're offered. That says something about the condition, the, the relationship of power between employers and employees, generally speaking. But, you know, at another level, it might say something about our lack of imagination, you know, about what we would do. I mean, I think some people really do live for their work. Um, and I don't think that's healthy. I don't think that's healthy economically, um, right? We don't have enough work to go around, for one thing. And I don't think it's healthy individually or socially. I think there's other kinds of activities, collective practices that we should be engaged in besides either work or collapse. But also, you know, to think more generally about work in the way that I want to think about it, I think that includes thinking about the work ethic, you know, the ideology of work, right? A work ethic that teaches us that work is, you know, a highest calling, a moral duty, an ethical practice, um, an end in itself. I mean, I think that this ideology of work has really helped encourage us to invest more in work than we might otherwise. So part of this critique of work is really aimed at a critique of the work ethic. Mm -hmm. Which is internalized as well as imposed on it. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, you know, most social systems work through both coercion and consent, right? I mean, and so one of the reasons why we work so long and hard is, like, simple. It's because we have to, right? It's the only way you can earn income, and most of us don't have the power to negotiate very much with our employers. But I think that's just part of the story. I mean, because I think also consent is manufactured to this state of affairs. You know, what makes us willing to live for work instead of just work to live? You know, what makes us willing to be obedient to these outrageous demands on the part of employers who won't even give us vacation? So days? what does make us? That way. Well, I mean, that's what I'm trying to puzzle through, and that's why I really wanted to focus on this history and of the ideology of work um, and how we internalize it, and to what you know, and, and at what 
psychological and social costs. All right, so talk a little bit about the history. I was interested to read in your writings um, a reference to a man I'd never heard of, Hugo Black, an Alabama Democrat who in the 1930s proposed a 30-hour mm -hmm. work week mm -hmm. and got a huge majority in the Senate mm -hmm. to approve. Mm -hmm. um, was he an outlier? Those were, you know, dire times in some ways. But I think that there's been a long history, you know, until that point, really until about World War II, um, where labor unions focused on less work. I mean, that that was on the agenda, right? Shorting hours from tw 14 to 12 to 10, right, to 8. I mean, this was a huge part of the labor movement and a really important focus. And then it sort of fell off the map. What and happened? we really haven't had any reductions in work hours since around World War II. So what happened? I think there's a lot of answers to that question. I mean, one of them is unions started to focus more on wage demands. Um, and I think certain kind of constituencies for shorter hours got, you know, sort of uh, quieted in certain kinds of workplaces. Mm -hmm. um, but I think it's a much more complicated history than that. And again, I would always want to go back to sort of larger kinds of cultural processes and the way that work became so elevated in our imagination and other possibilities get closed off. How is it specifically um, for women uh, with respect to all of this? Because your work looks a lot at the relation of feminism to this and it, out of the feminist movement have come mm. some discussions of this very topic, wages for housework, mm -hmm. things like that. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think feminists, too, have focused more on other kinds of agendas around work. So, you know, primarily they've focused on trying to gain women access to all kinds of professions, all kinds of jobs, and to help them, you know, work their way up the, you know, the, the hierarchy within those professions. And then second, I think feminists have focused on trying to gain recognition for, support for, sharing of unwaged domestic household-based labor. And I think those are both really important struggles. Um, the second one is a little closer to my heart. But the problem with both of them is that they end up sort of reproducing a kind of classic work ethic discourse, right? Because they're trying to sing the praises of either waged work for women or the importance and the dignity of unwaged work that we should all be doing. Um, and they end up sort of essentially bolstering, right? And reproducing and empowering that kind of work ethic discourse. The other thing they do is um, unwittingly often I think that they help enable the language and sentiments of family values discourses mm -hmm. because the two options we're left with with those agendas are work and family. Now it's interesting to go back to the days of, of May Day and the organizing for the eight-hour day that you refer to where the demands were not eight hours for work and eight hours for rest and eight hours for family. Mm. They were different. Yeah. And eight hours for what we will, right, which is such a wonderful formulation because it opens it up. Right? So there's where eight for work, eight for rest, and eight for what we will. Yeah, yeah. How do, well, yeah so we've lost that. Yes, <laughs> yes. How do we bring it back? Do you see anybody out there bringing oh, it back? I do, I'm really encouraged. I think, uh, I mean, in some ways, the crisis has made it more clear to more people that work isn't working, right? I mean, the unemployment level alone suggests that it's just not working as a mechanism of income distribution and social inclusion, right? Too many people are left out, too many people are excluded. So I think more people than ever are aware that this just isn't working on a systematic level. It's not just a problem with this job or that's th that job. This is a problem with a system that expects us to rely on waged work in order to live. And what other systems could we have? I mean, I'm really interested in other kinds of demands, demands for shorter working hours where people would have more time for what they will, 
right? And that might include also unwaged domestic work. Um, but also demands for a guaranteed basic income. You know, some kind of basic income that would be guaranteed for all individuals um, so that they wouldn't fall through this structurally unstable floor that we're all sitting on. Now, I think most people would still want to engage in some kind of productive activity, and I think people would want more than the minimum, so I think most people would be willing to engage in work, but I think it would give workers a stronger bargaining position to demand better kind of work. It would allow people to, some people to opt out if they wanted and they had other things that they could do. And it would help a system that doesn't produce enough work for all of us, right? So I think it's a, it's a more rational way to organize an economy in some ways. Before everybody says it's so radical, it's something that the Nixon mm -hmm. administration considered. Right, right. Where are you watching today, or, or what are you thinking about as you watch today's protests by fast food workers, retail workers, most of them re resisting a move to more part-time work, resisting a, a move to more sort of entrepreneurial status where they're all contractors for somebody they don't even know. Very different from what you're talking about. Well, and I think for good reason they aren't making, you know, those other kinds of options. And I don't want part-time work if it re means, a, you know, a decrease in pay and a loss of benefits, which is what it means now. And shorter hours would be different from that. It's not just moving everyone to part-time. It's actually reducing the legal working day in some ways and the level at which you would have to pay overtime. Um, but, I mean, I think, you know, look, in a system where it depends on work, we have to demand more work. Um, and I think that's a very important politics. But I would also want to always include in there a demand for less work, too. And in some ways, I read what they're demanding is less work, too, so that they don't have to have two jobs. Right. Right? Part of this is getting a, you know, a living wage, which I think of as a wage that can support a life outside work. All right, so here we are in the summer of 2013 with the economic conditions that we've talked about, wage stagnation, unemployment still high, Productivity, well, national productivity, doing fine. Um, and continuing a discourse about austerity, mm. continuing a discussion about cuts, cuts, cuts. Um, live for a moment in your utopian world. Um, what would you see, uh, what would you prefer to see us be talking about in this moment? Oh, I mean, spreading wealth. I mean, we have incredible wealth. I mean, I, again, I think that, that language of austerity should always be refused. I mean, it's a ruse. Right. Um, so I think that part of what I'm interested in, too, with these sort of utopian demands of less work and a guaranteed basic income is, um, is the way that they help us sort of think more critically about the relationship between work and the rest of life, but also more imaginatively about the possibilities of a life that's not so relentlessly subordinated to work. What would I do if I had more non-work time? Um, what would my relationship to my work be if the economic necessity to work was alleviated just a bit? You know, if the link between work and income was sort of um, loosened a bit. And I think it opens up all these possibilities for thinking about living differently. I mean, who has time to do anything between work and family? So I, I also want to sort of open up the possibilities for, again, what we will. You know, what would we do? And does it make us anxious? If so, why? That in itself is interesting. So I really think that these demands are really generative, not just of needed reforms that would help people live their lives, 
but also generative of critical perspectives and of the political imagination. And we have so few opportunities to exercise our political imagination. So I also want the demands to do that for us and the practice of demanding to enable us collectively to do some of that thinking and imagining. Kathy Weeks is the author of The Problem with Work. Today's activism segment comes to you, as always, in partnership with the Unfuck It Up Project, where creator Katie Goodman and activist director Katie Klobusik highlight individuals and organizations working to change the world. Today's campaign, Small Business Saturday. It's unusual for me to promote a campaign started by a giant corporation, but good ideas sometimes come from unusual places. Small Business Saturday may have been created by American Express, but the idea has spread to communities across the country as a way to promote local spending around the holidays. November 27th, 2010 was the first official Small Business Saturday, scheduled right after Black Friday to oppose the Walmart-promoted rush-to-trample-your-neighbor style consumerism the holidays have become known for. It was officially recognized by the Senate in 2011 and now has both a national Facebook page and some local ones cropping up around the country. Shopping small, it turns out, doesn't just have a negative effect on the anti-labor, anti-environment big box stores we loathe, it has a positive effect on our communities. According to the American Independent Business Alliance, for every dollar spent at a small business, 68% stays local, giving a boost to the economy. For every dollar spent at a chain, that same amount is immediately sent overseas or to CEOs whose bottom lines don't need your help, especially this time of year. Even if you're anti-consumerism, anti-capitalism, or relatively income-challenged, you're likely to do some gift-giving this season. And if that's the case and you do have to shop, do what you can to fuel your local economy while you're at it. Many communities turn Small Business Saturday into an event with special deals, outreach, family activities, etc. Take the opportunity to meet the merchants in your city and see what routine purchases you make that might be met by local shops. Simply being out this Saturday, November 30th, instead of on Black Friday, is a visible statement that your town or city matters to you. So check out smallbusinesssaturday.com for more information and Google your own area to find planned celebrations you can participate in this weekend. And now a quick thought about how this type of activism isn't about doing what's right and in line with your values 100% of the time. It's about doing the best you can as often as you can. As I've been saying for years, that which you can't find locally in independently owned businesses, you're most likely going to buy online. And if there's anything you need that you can't find on Small Business Saturday, keep in mind that Cyber Monday, which follows just two days later, can act as a sort of backup. And I've been holding my nose and advertising for Amazon for years now, suggesting them as just such a backup because at the very least, you can shop through the affiliate link posted at bestoftheleft.com, which will siphon off some of the corporate profits and redirect them to this progressive media outlet, all while not changing how you shop or the price of anything you were planning on buying anyways. Thanks for doing the best you can as often as you can. Fucked up.
you help them fuck it up? And then say, are you really so fucking busy? You can't take one fucking minute to help unfuck it up. Because I'm willing to pick one thing to help unfuck it up. Won't you join me? I want to talk a little bit about Costco and Trader Joe's. Now, for a long time, we've talked on this program about how claims from Walmart that they simply cannot afford to raise wages and pay a true living wage to employees without being uh, without losing profitability doesn't really make sense because we can look at Costco, which pays a living wage and has much lower employee turnover and is very, very profitable. It clearly is possible. And a lot of people write to me and they say, hold on a second, David, you're not taking a very important piece of information into consideration, and that is that Costco has a membership fee. So that when we look at the profit margin on Walmart products versus Costco products, you have to take into consideration that Costco is padding their, their, their balance sheet, so to speak, by having this membership fee. Of course, that is not actually a good argument, but let's assume it is for a second. We now have an, a, a very good article in The Atlantic talking about Trader Joe's. Trader Joe's also paying employees a living wage and also profiting significantly. And the approach to a lot of people just seems like common sense. You keep the shelves stock, stocked, you have employees who are paid well, which makes them provide better customer service. It reduces turnover, so your costs for having to replace employees are lower, and you are still profitable. So, Lewis, I think at this point, this argument about Costco that it's an exception, they can do something Walmart can't because of those membership fees, does the Trader Joe's example not provide even more data that Walmart could raise wages and still be profitable? I mean, for lack of a better term, they would still be very profitable. Oh, yeah, of, of course. And it's it's not just Trader Joe's. Uh, you have any number of, of companies. I think Starbucks is another one of these companies. There are there are many, and many small businesses, too. Um, the thing is that if it's true what what the, the execs are saying about Walmart not being able to be profitable by paying their employees a minimum, uh, a li- you know, a livable wage, then that means that they are doing something very wrong from a sales and business point of view. Right. It would bring into question many other aspects of Walmart's business. And the reality is we can make a lot of criticisms about Walmart, but they know how to do business. They know how to get good prices for the products that they're selling. They know how to uh, uh, fill the supply chain so you don't have stock issues. I mean, Walmart are good business people, and it is simply not believable that they really believe if they raised wages, they would all of a sudden lose profitability. Just doesn't make any sense. I just flat out don't believe it. Most people don't have time to uprise. They're too busy working, two jobs to survive. And they don't work as force important. They work us to make that profit. Someday we gotta stop it. Every song I've written is about more than music. We don't have to be living in the system. I can prove it. You heard of people's movement in the people's music revolution. Expect the current system to make solutions. Legalized drugs, set up help for the addicts. How can you imprison a person for falling in the bad habits? Instead of contracts for weapons, use that money for free transit. Free Public transportation, the environmentalation. We could use that money in the cities to make them decent. Give homeless people homes, skyscrapers are not needed. Use money that's building prisons on paying the teachers more. Stop working for profit, start working to ensure our people's needs are met. Then we wouldn't have the poor. What we haven't been talking about is this new model of capitalism, which has taken hold of America as a consequence of Reaganomics. 
Now, the uh, two things apropos of that. The first is Ted Cruz. <laughs> Some, somebody asked him, well, what did you get out of this budget, you know, shutting down the government? And he said, uh, we saw, first of all, millions of people, millions of millions of American people rising up across this country, over two million people signing a national petition to defund Obamacare. In other words, he harvested two million email addresses. He also uh, took in $797,000 in contributions, Ted Cruz, as a result of this shutting down the government. And the uh, Heritage Action Fund, the Heritage Foundation's PAC, they took in $330,000 so far. And with that 2 million email addresses, they'll be able to go back every month and say, hey, how about another 10 bucks? $10 from 2 million people? If all of them gave 10 bucks, and some will give 20 and some will give nothing, so let's say that they all gave on average $10. Because some will give 200 and some will, you know, and maybe a, a 10 will give nothing. $10 a person, 2 million addresses, that's 20 million bucks a month that Ted Cruz could be bringing in as a result of having shut down our government. So he shut, he shuts down the government. And meanwhile, 2000, two, excuse me, 2,033 civilian employees were laid off. These are people who like, you know, man the food shops around the national parks or people whose business depends on tourism around the Statue of Liberty, that kind of thing. 883,392 actual government employees got laid off. $206 million worth of supplemental food assistance to women and infant, women, infant and children in severe need. These are the desperately poor and high risk children. $206 million worth of food was not given to them over the last two and a half weeks. Two million, two billion nine hundred eighty-two million dollars in unpaid salaries. So that's what happened. But this new model of capitalism—the thing I really, really wanted to riff on—this was invented in large part, I would submit to you, by Walmart and the companies that were following the Walmart model. Now, I don't know if Walmart invented it, but they—they they certainly have perfected it. And we used to think this was just a Walmart problem. And here's, here's how the business model works. We will do business in a way that will make a profit for us. But it will also generate some costs. But the public will pay for those costs. So tax dollars will pay for the costs that are created by our doing business the way that we do. And we get to keep all the profits. Now, to the best of my knowledge, there is not a good name for this kind of capitalism. Which is a real shame, because this is the new American capital model. Now, it's been going on for a long, long time. You know, you've heard me a million times say, you know, the, the, the mission of business is it internalized profits, ex externalized costs. Keep the profits in the company, put the costs on the people. And you could go all the way back to John Rockefeller's oil wells in Ohio in the 1880s. Standard Oil in New Jersey in the 1890s. 
I mean, to this day, the Koch brothers uh, refining oil in in Michigan and, and Chicago, and uh, refining the uh, tar sands crude, and and having ending up with these huge piles of of waste that, when the wind blows, just go downwind into largely poor African American communities and pollute the air. They keep the profit; we get the trash. But the way that Walmart did it was. Walmart keeps the profit, and they pay their employees so little that their employees are literally impoverished. They literally are living below below or at or near to the poverty line, and as a consequence, their employees are eligible for food stamps and housing assistance and heating assistance in the winter and Medicare, or Medicaid, rather. And so we are paying, we are subsidizing their employees. They pay their employees seven, eight, nine dollars an hour. It's not enough to live on. You really need, you know, ten, eleven, twelve dollars an hour to live on. I mean, twelve dollars an hour is what the minimum wage was in 1968. And back in 68, most of the people working in for the minimum wage were, were young people just entering the job market. So to make up that difference between the nine dollars an hour that they're paid and the twelve or thirteen or fourteen or fifteen dollars an hour that it actually costs to live, people are getting benefits from the government, which means you and I are subsidizing the workers at Walmart. And we've seen where you know one study was done that showed that just one Walmart store basically sucked up about a million dollars a year in benefits for its for its employees. So every Walmart store is costing us, the taxpayers, say a million dollars a year. Well, here comes this new study. This is just amazing. This is the University of California Berkeley Center for Labor Research and Education. Ken Jacobs is the the spokes guy for this, and he says that the wages of America's fast food chains are so low. Now, this is just the fast food industry. I'm not talking about Walmart anymore. This is what I'm pointing out is that this is spreading this form of 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 uh, the vampire capitalism. Right, and the and then they have their fangs into the bloodstream of we the people into 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 our tax dollars. America's fast food chains are paying so little to their employees that their employees used. And now they looked at the years two thousand seven through two thousand eleven. So this is a four year study, good solid study, seven billion dollars. A year that you and I are paying in taxes that gets shifted to the workers of these fast food restaurants. They said the ten chains. This is the National Employment uh, Law Project found the ten chains with two and a half, uh, two and a quarter million workers. This is about a sixty percent of the no benefit business model. They call this. Just these ten chains. This is McDonald's, Yum Brands, which is Pizza Hut, Taco Bell, KFC,、um, Subway, Burger King, Wendy's, Dunkin' Donuts, Dairy Queen, Little Caesars, Sonic, and Domino's. Okay, just those ten companies have two and a half million workers. They their workers took three point eight billion dollars in benefits, public benefits. We subsidize those companies, those ten companies, to the tune of three point eight billion dollars. The executives at those companies made more than fifty-three million dollars in compensation, and seven point seven billion dollars was paid in dividends and buybacks to their shareholders. 
So they show a $7.5 billion profit, and we kick in $3.8 billion so that their employees can stay alive and come to work every day. This doesn't even count the other, you know, I've, I've always talked about, you know, the, the, the cost of providing a workforce where people can actually spell and read and write and add and run an addy machine and, you know, public roads that they can drive to work on and all of these things that these corporations should be paying for that they're, by and large, you typically not because they figure out these tax dodge schemes, these tax avoidance schemes. Or they, they come into town and they say, oh, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll create jobs here, but uh, give us, you know, 10 years no taxes or give us some free land or something like that. Do you have an idea for a name for this kind of capitalism? I'm trying to name it, and I, and I, I need a name. Walmart in o in Cleveland, Ohio. Walmart is setting up bins of alternating colors of purple and orange. It's a food drive. Good for Walmart for supporting the community. Oh no, it's not for the community. <laughs> it's a food drive. For its own needy workers. This is just stunning. Corey Lundberg, a Walmart spokesman, said the food drive is proof that employees care about each other. If only their employer did as well. It's for associates who have had some hardships come up. Maybe their spouse lost a job. Or maybe both spouses work here. <laughs> no, I added that last part. <laughs> He did a double take. This is part of the company's. Culture. I didn't even blink. I thought that was an accurate quote. I really did. This it's is part of the company's culture to rally around associates and take care of them when they face extreme hardships. I have another way that the company's culture could rally around associates: pay them a living wage. The Associates in Critical Need Trust is funded by Walmart employee contributions that can be given through a payroll deduction. Employees can receive grants up to $1,500 to address hardships they may encounter. Uh, this is not part of that. It's another separate Walmart-wide program. Vanessa Ferreira of uh, our Walmart organizer says she flipped out when she first saw the photos taken by the Canton worker. Why would a company do that? The company needs to stand up and give them 40 hours and a living wage. So they don't have to worry about whether they can afford Thanksgiving. Unbelievable. This holiday, Bush, season, this holiday season, help a Walmart worker. Donate your jacket, donate your clothes, your food. It's I was, unbelievable. I was thinking that, of, that reminded me of, uh, do you remember that moment? It's one of the most awkward moments, I feel like, in modern politics when Bush was out pushing Social Security privatization. Uniquely American. 
Yes, exactly. This is, and this woman's talking this horror story of like working three different jobs. And even you could tell with Bush, there's a moment where in his somewhere in even his mind, he's like, wow, that sounds like kind of messed up. <laughs> and then he just like looks at her. He's like, what you say? Well, she, yes. She had said, like, I work uh, two or three jobs to do this. And he just looks at her and he goes, good for you for working uh, two or three jobs. That is uniquely American. It's just how stunning. Like the she pride. had kids. She it was for insurance. The pride he takes in the fact that this woman has to work multiple jobs to support her family. Only in America do you have to do that. I think we should be proud. I, for one, barely worked one job for most of my life. I'm less than American. When I see or I'm also uniquely American insofar as I. I had a family that just sort of uh, took me through life. I skated through until I wound up in the presidency. I didn't realize that would be so hard. It's hard work. <laughs> Governor of Texas, you just cut a couple of ribbons. It's not like uh, punching that clock. That's why I had to always leave work at home. I mean, uh, you know, take a bunch of vacations. Although literally punching clocks can be fun. <laughs> yeah. But I, but someone will say, like, this shows you the spirit of charity in business. Yeah. You'll hear that spin. Oh, definitely. Hey, this is Kid. I'm calling from Austin, Texas, and I know I'm a little bit behind on listening to the podcast, and I just heard the one about teaching makes my blood boil. I was a teacher for five years, uh, nominated to Who's Who Among America's Teachers for every one of the years that I taught, and that was an honor that I really enjoyed because it came from my students, not from anybody else. But I quit teaching for all of the reasons named in the podcast and more. As a teacher, I qualified for both Medicaid and food stamps on a teacher's salary, which is to me very sad and depressing. We do not give teachers the respect or authority that they deserve, but at the same time, we pander to those star athletes. Being a teacher in a small town in Texas, I saw many people pander to those student athletes and give them what they want. I was encouraged to change grades for student athletes and I could not abide teaching to the test anymore. I tried to make my classes more interesting and my tests were not really tests but projects that I would assign to the students based upon the material that we had studied the prior semester or six weeks. One of the projects that I had them do was to create a magazine based on a time period. And it had to contain certain items, as most magazines have to have, articles of relevance to that magazine, to the style of the magazine. They had to design it. They had to include an advice column, games that would have been particular to the time period that they did. When we studied advertising, I had them make a fake project for, with the corresponding packaging and an ad campaign. 
but I was told that I couldn't give those type of tests anymore because they were not measurable. I had to give them an actual test, and that's when I quit. Anyway, thanks for listening. Uh, this is one of my hot button issues, and I had to get up on my soapbox about it. Love the show. Thanks a lot. Bye. Hi, Jay. This is Nathan from Vancouver, Washington. And I'm calling about uh, your, your latest Education is Not a Commodity episode. And one of the things I wanted to, to point out is that education is also an environmental issue, at least in my life and the life of many people that I know. James Howard Kunstler, in his work, and he has a podcast, he hasn't put anything new out there, but it's called the Kunstler Cast, K-U-N-S-T-L-E-R. He talks a lot about urbanism and about how it's not the latest hempcrete photovoltaic you know windows and things like that that are going to really save us a lot of energy it's making a neighborhood where you don't need to walk i mean you don't need to drive to go to the grocery store it's making you know neighborhoods that are laid out well for public transportation it's making buildings that don't need to be replaced constantly that don't need to you know that aren't made of cheap plastic like the big box stores and amongst those things would be schools a universally high quality school system would prevent people like me who, even though we frequently review it, I live 20, over 20 miles away from where I work. I would love to live closer, but I can't get the, the, the combination of affordable housing and quality schooling that my children require by moving closer. Just imagine all those people like me, if we knew that anywhere in the country we should run into high quality schools, I live in Vancouver, Washington, and I work across the river in Portland, Oregon. I would gladly live in Portland if the schools were anywhere close to the difference in the cost of housing. And so this kind of thing is a huge source of commuting, it's a huge source, because so many people, you have your job over in one place and you would love to live close to work, but you can't because the schools there are not good enough. They're a vastly different quality than the schools where you currently live or where you end up moving. And so there's a lot of gasoline burned just for the fact that you, you've got to go to, you've got to live where the schools are and you've got to work wherever the job is available. Thank you. Enjoy the show. Have a nice day. Hi, Jay. This is uh, Brian, a uh, firefighter from Pennsylvania. Well, I'm actually an administrator now. Um, I'm part of the... Uh, the other side, as the firemen say now. Uh, I wanted to respond to Luis from Texas, I believe. Hey, Jay, this is Luis. Um, I'm a firefighter out here in Texas. There's this need for some of my fellow coworkers, even the, the self, self-described Democrats, to chastise the poor for having a big screen TV, for living in government assistance and their children owning Nikes or, or what have you. And, and I think it's it's um, <laughs> it's sad because we um, that's neither here nor there on, on, on to what and where people spend their money. I, I don't think the, the, the issue that he brought up is is new. I think it's it's uh, much uh, more pronounced these days. I remember 35 years ago seeing the people in, in line for blocks of cheese and and uh, the contempt the firemen had for them that, that I was around anyway. I'm, you know, what the hell do you want a block of cheese for? Let the people go. And um, just being in homes that were burned out and just wrecking the, all this stuff, it just, just 
was uh, heartbreaking to me. I, I think the underlying issue is bigotry, mainly contempt for the poor. I would suggest it stems from the constant battering from the elitist conservatives in their media over the long term. Uh, now, uh, since those elitist conservatives have turned their fingers on us, public servants and the teachers, uh, those in our occupations have more contempt for those uh, who they see as a cause for them being targeted. I love the video, Tax the Rich, an animated fairy tale featuring um, Ed Asner. I think it was produced by the California Teachers Union. Uh, if you've not seen this video, watch it, because it really hits the nail on the head about how the rich have turned against us uh, and, and us against the poor. Um, back to the fact that as first responders, though, uh, we should be held to a higher standard. I agree. Uh, I like to ask the question to our disgruntled firemen, uh, why did you become a fireman? You know, we had that old cliche on us that we became firefighters to help people. Um, so then I asked them, well, what the heck are you complaining about? You know, we have guys making uh, uh, nearly six figures and, um, you know, much more than I am now. Uh, and, and just they, they go on more calls, though, so, uh, more health-related issues now. Medics are running their rear ends off and firemen are helping them. Uh, I live in one of the uh, top ten poorest cities in the country. And we're seeing that grow, actually. And, and it's just heartbreaking. Uh, what can we do about it? Uh, I think guys like Luis, I'm speaking his mind in his firehouse and, and among his group of people is a start. And I, I applaud him for that. And I'd like to echo everything he said and have a good day. Thank you much. Hey, Jay. It's uh, Sarah Pittsburgh. I was uh, having a conversation today with somebody who uh, is a Democrat, but is a social, uh, sorry, fiscally conservative, wage and less regulation on Wall Street, that sort of thing. And one of the things he said was that uh, he thought that if we keep regulating, if we have a lot of regulation, then the United States will be less appealing to uh, companies who want to uh, start a business here. Uh, it will drive people out, keep people away, that kind of thing. And he thought that the States was losing its stature in the world, basically. It's um, number, you know, we got to be the best, got to be number one. And I was thinking about this for a little bit, and I thought, is, is that overrated, our, our standing in the world, our perceived standing in the world? So I just wanted to ask the, uh, the best of the left listeners if uh, what they thought of that. I'm still sort of pondering it myself so yeah it was just uh, wondering what you thought what the listeners thought and the uh, great work show and all that keep listening have a good day bye Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make the show possible, and thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, the number to dial is 202-999-3991. So today I have for you programming notes, which I always think are the most exciting types of notes. So first of all, future programming notes. This episode is the last new episode until December, Uh, but don't worry that December is really not that far away. Uh, The show will be off for about a week due to the Thanksgiving holiday and the fact that it is going to be the most hectic Thanksgiving that I 
uh, have had that I can remember. Uh, there's going to be something like 1,500 miles of driving involved and two families to visit. So that's going to have me on the sidelines of the show for a little while. Um, in the meantime, I will be putting out a couple of rerun episodes, hand-picked, evergreen excellent episodes that uh, it would be a privilege to listen to a second time, I think. And if you're really lucky, you will have missed them the first time, in which case they will be brand new episodes to you. And it will be as if the you know, I didn't go on vacation at all. Now, uh, current programming notes, you heard in today's show that there was an unfuck it up project clip, which means that Katie Klebusik is back because she's the one who does all the research for those segments. And she's back because she was gone. And she was gone because she was helping produce this uh, this giant online telethon raising money in response to the Texas legislature passing horribly oppressive uh, legislation against women's uh, reproductive rights. You may have heard about it. Basically, you know, this is a, a subject that Katie's very passionate about. She's uh, she knows Liz Winstead, the creator of The Daily Show, whose idea it was to launch an online uh, telethon to raise money. So she got involved, and she she came to me basically a couple weeks ago. She she said, you know, do you think would it be okay if I took some time off to pursue, uh, you know, th this event so I can help put this together? Uh, you know, basically the plan is to work endlessly, sleep a couple hours a night, uh, every day and night until the event. And, you know, they were going to try to throw it together in a couple of weeks. And I said, well, do I pay you yet? And she said, no, no, I, I volunteer because I am passionate about the work and I want to help promote activism through your show. And so I do that for free. And I said, okay, then I guess you can have the time off. As long as you are here all the earlier, the morning after the event, because it's a sorry excuse to pick a man's pocket like that every time another law is passed to horribly suppress women's rights. And so the the event happened, went off without a hitch, uh, as far as I know, and it's a huge success, uh, all all because of. Uh, I mean, essentially because of Katie, but really because I allowed her to have the time off. So I, I really couldn't be prouder for the, the relatively large part that I played in making that event the success that it was. And I'm happy to have Katie back now and, uh, you know, for, for the Unfuck It Up project to have, you know, regained its footing and, uh, and we'll be picking back up as the show goes forward. So if you, if you are interested in checking out the telethon that Katie put together, uh, helped put together, uh, check it out at ladypartsjustice.com. And of course you can still donate to the cause. Uh, basically, you know, women in Texas who are in need of reproductive rights and do not have, uh, you know, equal access to those anymore are, uh, you know, money is going to support the needs of those women. That's the basic idea. So check that out, ladypartsjustice.com. And, you know, if you heard me mention in there, you might have heard me say that uh, Katie volunteers to do the activism work that she does for this show. You know, does, you know, a few hours of, uh, you know, research and, and then the copy editing or, you know, or copywriting for, for those segments. You know, and if you think that she should be paid for that work rather than being a volunteer, I, I would tend to agree with you on that. And if you are of that mindset, I would suggest that you sign up for a membership at bestofleft.com or because it is the season of giving, uh, consider giving a gift membership for the Best of Left uh, podcast to someone who you think may be interested in that or to someone who you think would not be interested in that just to irritate them. 
and and uh, you know, hopefully, all together, we can get Katie a little bit of money that she uh, definitely deserves. So, in the meantime, uh, before I leave you with that, uh, I, I will ask the question that you can ponder for the next week before I come back to play the responses. Should we care if our prestige in the world is tarnished as Americans? I don't know. Is is it all about ego and uh, you know bluster and none of that stuff really matters, or is uh, you know the the perception of American prestige the the foundation on which the value of our currency sits, which is the reserve currency for the whole you know world? Our reputation being tarnished leads to uh, economic upheaval that hurts the you know the, the most vulnerable people in the world. Let me know that number again, 202-999-3991. That is going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making one-time donations, as that is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it, leaving glowing reviews on iTunes and Stitcher, uh, sharing the show on Facebook and Twitter, and by donating your accounts at donateyouraccount.com slash best of the left. Stay tuned into the show by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter. And for details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from inside the beltway yet outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, DC, my name is Jay, and this has been the best of the left podcast coming to you usually every third day, except for when, you know, the holidays come from best of and it's a crying shame How we get so trained We can't see past all the sad stories And wonder what we're missing We can't see past all the sad stories And forget how to listen We can't see past all the sad stories And Stories and forget who it is with